0: My dear dear life hackers, this is Saturday and we prepared another amazing episode of Happiness Patterns for you. This time we explore the dreams, the intangible. There we spend at least a third of our life. So the big question is, is it possible that it's just the time where we get into the mere oblivion? and try to forget ourselves. We meet with Mr. Charlie Morley, one of my favorite spiritual explorers, and we look into tips that will help both beginners and advanced explorers of the nighttime to look deep and to transform what's happening there. In this part we also discuss nightmares and how they can become your superpower. A lot of priceless information for you life hackers. Just one thing, we did our best, but for some reason Zoom hasn't recorded the sound as it does usually in a I mean in a decent way. We did our best with the audio technician to improve the sound afterwards in the recording, but still It's not 100% perfect as I would want it to be, so I'm sorry for that, we'll do our best not to have similar troubles in the future. And please enjoy and meet Charlie Morley. Patterns of happiness are frameworks that always work. They are tools and practices that will bring permanent change to your life for better. We're not looking for temporary solutions. We change and transform. We practice what we preach and we're gonna share it with you here. Be careful because you can become seriously happier today.
1: Charlie, thank you for finding time to meet with me, finally. Thank you, thank you for having me. Did you have enough time to recover from your journey to Croatia?
2: I'm well recovered.
1: To set out the ground for our conversation, Charlie, can you please explain, is there a chance that some people don't have dreams? It's for those who doubt that dreams can be lucid, and it's for those who think that they don't have dreams. It's almost impossible.
2: Um, The only way to stop the human brain from dreaming is major head trauma. So if you have a stroke or if you had like a really bad car accident with a lot of head trauma, you might stop dreaming or have reduced dreaming for a few months afterwards. Um, But after a few months, the dreams would come back. So everybody is dreaming every single night. Based on an eight-hour sleep cycle, they'll have about five dream periods a night, multiple dreams in each dream period. So the question isn't do I dream, it's, do I remember my dreams?
1: Mm-hmm. Why people don't remember their dreams? What's the reason for that? Some people are like 60 years old and they say I- I've never had a dream in my life. I'm just wondering why they have lived all of their life and have never remembered anything.
2: I think simply because they've never tried. It's as simple as that. You know, I often meet these people that are often around 60, late 60s. Um, And they hear me presenting on the neuroscience of dreaming and say, no, 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 I don't dream. I've lived 60 years. I do not dream. And this happens about maybe once a month. I'll meet someone like this. who really wants to test the theory. And I say, okay, please test my theory. I'm confident in these, in these techniques. So tonight, as you fall asleep, I want you to set a strong intention to remember your dreams. When did you last do that? And they say, well, no, I don't try and remember my dreams because I don't dream. And I say, okay, so tonight, set an intention to remember your dreams, either just before bed, sit you know, sit on the edge of your bed and just say, right, tonight I'm going to test this guy. Let's see if Charlie knows what he's talking about. I'm going to remember my dreams. That can work for some people. Even better is if they go into the hypnagogic state, which is that transitional state of mind as you're falling asleep, which is a natural state of hypnosis, and implant a hypnotic suggestion to remember their dreams, such as Tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream recall. And this is what listeners and watchers of your podcast can do as they fall asleep tonight. The Tibetan tradition would say to do that 21 times as you fall asleep. If you do that, there's a very high chance that you will remember your dreams upon awakening. It's not, you know, 100%, but many people find that if you do that for seven days, seven days in a row, then it's almost 100% success rate. Um,
1: Just a quick question. Do they need to do this aloud, like, I want to see a dream, or it can be just as an intention? You can do Sorry, it. yeah,
2: because you're falling asleep, you're doing it in your mind as you fall asleep, yeah.
1: In the book, you say that uh, you live in a Buddhist community, is it right? Yeah, I just moved out,
2: I moved out a year ago, so I now live in an apartment, like, I can see the Buddhist center, I can see the roof, uh, I live about 150 meters away. Um, <laughs> I've been living there for almost eight years. Um, I got married, even though I was living there with my fiance, we got married, we decided to move out, um, and I looked at all these apartments in London, they were all so expensive, because London's such an expensive place to live, and then we gave up, and then just when we gave up, this one more alert came through in the email, saying this apartment, showing this apartment, and it was, you know, on the same road, not only on the same road, but like two doors down, you know, a few buildings away, and we thought, oh, let's go and see it, it's so close, and we went to see it, we loved it and I ended up buying. So yeah, now I live in the outer mandala rather than the inner mandala, but I'm still within the mandala.
1: Within the, what does it imply that you're within the mandala? Does it have any influence on your routine, on your daily agenda?
2: <laughs> does it affect my... I mean, if you're talking energetic, I mean, I was kind of joking about the mandala, but if you're talking energetically, then yes, you're still within the sphere of influence of the mandala. You're still within the energetic space um of the buddhist center and the buddhist center has had a lot of things done to it. you know a lot of ceremonies done there a lot of enlightened people who've been there um, and they do a lot of blessing to the actual building itself and the surrounding area to they say pacify the elementals which i guess means you know spreading good vibes um, and creating an energetic framework in the space so i think maybe i'm still within the um uh, within the sphere of that influence but also because you live so close to the Buddhist center, what does it mean? It means I don't forget about Buddhism. It means every day <laughs> I walk past it. It means at least once a week I'll go down there and do one of the practices or to go and meet someone there. or um, Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't, I would feel very different if I lived, you know, 20 miles away. I think there's some, because I'm connected to the lineage. It's nothing, I don't think there's anything special about Buddhism something special about spirituality it's like a christian living near a church would probably feel more connected i'm a buddhist so i feel more connected to to
1: the buddhist center. how is your lineage connected with lucid dreaming and buddhism in general because i remember in your book you started saying that you had your first lucid dreams when you were around 17 so as far as i understand you weren't a buddhist at that time Mm. and uh are these two different careers like becoming a lucid dreamer and the teacher of lucid dreaming and being a Buddhist? Mm, Good point.
2: So I actually had my first lucid dreams earlier
1: than that, but
2: I taught myself to lucid dream intentionally when I was 16, 17. Um, And as soon as you start reading lucid dreaming books, as I did, they all mention that Tibetan Buddhism has this tradition called dream yoga uh, with the Tibetan term is milan naojo which means, uh, yeah, that yoga of the dream. Um, So if you read a lucid dreaming book, you're probably going to hear that mentioned. So it was in my my mind. And at the same time, at 17, I was also reading books about Buddhism because I was getting interested in that. But I first learned lucid dreaming separate from the Buddhist path. Um, I wasn't taught dream yoga techniques. I hadn't gone to any dream yoga workshops or anything like that. So, yeah, I learned lucid dreaming separately, first of all, and just used it for, like, sex and skateboarding and just hedonism because I was 17, so that sounded <laughs> kind of good at the time. Um, and then when I got into Buddhism properly when I was 19, then I started exploring further these, these dream yoga practices, which, you know, the, the practice of becoming lucid was very similar, actually. A lot of the Western techniques are actually based on the Tibetan ones, whether they know it or not, or whether it's just the human brain thousand years ago is similar to the human brain now so similar techniques work in the same way Um, but i learned some of those techniques and crucially it was learning about what to do when you're lucid so people want to learn all these fancy dream yoga techniques of falling asleep imagining you're the deity and all these kind of things but actually the dream yoga starts once you're lucid in the lucid dream do you use it for spiritual practice or do you use it for just flying about having sex with movie stars this kind of thing so it was mainly that, that changed when I got into Buddhism. People telling me to do things like meditate in the lucid dream, say mantras in the lucid dream, transform yourself into the deity in the lucid dream. That stuff was new. I hadn't come across that. Um, and soon I found out that there was a long history, you know, at least a thousand years um, that lucid dreaming had been practiced within Tibetan Buddhism. And before that, in Buddhism itself, you know, there's a quote from the historical Buddha. Uh, two and a half thousand years ago, where he tells his monks and nuns to fall asleep in a state of mindfulness. Um, now, he's not using the term lucidity here, but to fall asleep in a state of mindfulness feels like the first kind of instruction there about lucid dreaming. And of course, if you do enough meditation and if you're a fully enlightened being like the Buddha was, um, it's said that once you're fully enlightened, like all your dreams are lucid. You either don't dream, you're just in the clear light state all night or any dreams you have are either prophetic dreams or they're lucid dreams. So was Buddha a lucid dreamer? Definitely. Um, But it seems that it was the Tibetan Buddhist uh, lineages that really explored lucid dreaming um, more fully. For example, like in Zen Buddhism, you don't have... uh, There may be dream practices, but you don't have such a kind of a catalogue of the dream practices, whereas Tibetan Buddhism is all about dream and death. Those are two very
1: strong aspects. I guess uh, living in a community where people actually nurture this and support it and maybe even share in the morning, whether they had lucid dreams or not. Uh, I mean, I think it, it might be very helpful.
2: Yeah, that was kind of cool. Like being able to, in the mornings, you know, being, ha- having breakfast with Lama, with Lama Zangma, who's a, um, who's the woman who runs the Buddhist center and she's done like 10 years retreats. She's done all the dream yoga practices. And you know, not often, but maybe once a month, I'd come down to breakfast and I'd say, "Oh, Lama, I just had this dream." And she might comment on it. Often she'd just say, "Forget it," because that's the job of the Lama: is if they see any ego coming, in, any pride at your achievement, boom, they'll just smash you. And I'm thankful for that. But often too, she would say, "Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe this, maybe that. Um, yeah, it was cool. You know." But people think of living in a Buddhist center. They think that everyone's like enlightened who lives in a Buddhist center. It's the opposite. And we're all totally fucked up. That's why we're living in a Buddhist center. Like <laughs> the people who are really peaceful and Zen, that they don't need to live in a Buddhist center. But my mind's so crazy. I had to live there to try and calm my mind. So it's not quite as Zen as you would think. But yes, you are surrounded by people who, who most of whom do Buddhist practice. So it's not weird. It's something you can talk about. Um, It's something that you're encouraged to do. You know, as as Lama told me, if you can't meditate living in a Buddhist center, you can't meditate
1: anywhere. I've checked your site, and I know that you do the workshop, lucid dreaming workshops. What does it consist of? I mean, what I imagine it is like, it's like people getting together and like sleeping together, or how does it go? Yeah, so if you
2: go on my website, anything that says workshop is like a seminar so you know you go and you learn the lucid dreaming techniques maybe we do do some lying down practice but you're kind of rehearsing for the nighttime right whereas anything on the website that says retreat um, those are the ones that are really fun where yes during the day we do all the workshop stuff we learn the techniques we do some yoga we do meditation but then at night time people sleep in their rooms from 10 30 till 3 30 well this is option if they want sleep in their room from 10 30 till 3 30. Then at 3.30 in the morning, they wake up and they move into the shrine area where they have bed number two. So you have two beds, one in your bedroom and one in the shrine room. Um, And then from 3.30 onwards, I then guide people into sleep with a certain technique. And then an hour and a half later, I wake them up with the Tibetan singing bowls very gently. And everyone sits up, writing down their dreams, writing down their lucidity, whatever has happened. And then I guide them back into sleep for another hour and a half. Then I wake them back up and I guide them back into sleep. So this is a really old technique you find in Tibetan Buddhism as well as you find in the Toltec Mexican practices, which is essentially if you fall asleep once and you wake up once, you have one chance to remember your dreams, one chance of lucidity, one chance of whatever. If some crazy guy wakes you four times a night, you've just quadrupled your chances of success. So that's essentially what we're doing. I'm not saying people sleep like that every night, but just for the period of the four-day retreat, it's like lucid dreaming boot camp you know you go really intensely into the practice and yeah. um, people leave maybe once a week they sleep like that they wake several times or once every two weeks something like that um but yeah that's really my kind of flagship retreat because i don't think there's anyone else in the world who does that i know some other lucid dreaming people they wake you like once but i'm talking four times a night four nights in a row so i think i'm unique in that and <laughs> but i think, think it's just because i'm younger i think mean, when i get older I'll be like, fuck that man, I'm too tired for this. When I have kids, I'll be like, fuck that. But right now, I'm young and I have the energy to do it, so.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, four times is a lot. But at the same time, every week, I take the night shift looking after my daughter. And uh, like yesterday, I woke up at least seven times. Now I started thinking, maybe I should use it as an opportunity for lucid dreaming as well, it could work. You could, I
2: mean, I'll t- sometimes I've been at workshops and someone will ask that question and you'll see the women in the room go, and it just tempts up as if like, no, you don't know the pain. You cannot use this for lucid dreaming, you're so stressed, you, all this kind of stuff, so I don't know. If you could use it for lucid dreaming, go for it. Yes, it is a technique, but also some people say they're so sleep deprived during that time where they're waking up for their kids, lucid dreaming is, is out the window anyway. So yeah, if you can use it, use it. If not, just concentrate on getting some sleep. And then when your daughter's through this period and when she's a little bit older and she's sleeping, then
1: yeah, then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved your book. I mean, there is no water in the good sense. I mean, you do not waste time with long stories, you just get into it. You have very clear techniques. And one of them I shared it with many friends of mine and it worked for them. The shadow part, I have never looked at the nightmares and at the whole concept of having this difficult, emotionally hard dreams as something I could work with. Mm. So you have completely shifted my perspective and uh, I wouldn't say that I'm such a successful lucid dreamer. I had only a couple of uh, lucid dreams that I remember. But two of them were the ones where I had a chance to use the technique to give a hug to my greatest fears. Mm. and It was so transforming for me. So for this, I'm forever grateful for you for sure. And I shared it with a couple of friends of mine who used it as well. And they said that it's amazing because it's actually an absolutely different perspective you're not running from the nightmares you're actually going into them yeah and I understand the concept in life when you say okay I feel sad or I feel anger I'm not running to suppress it I'm looking into it but doing the same in the dream whoa that was incredible yeah, I'm glad that you found that helpful this concept is based on the
2: idea that everything in the lucid dream is a psychological representation of yourself. You know, if you're having a lucid dream and your father appears, it's not your dad. It's your psychological representation of your dad. If you meet, um, uh, you know, a dog in the lucid dream, it's not a dog, it's your psychological representation of a dog, which for some people might represent fear because they're scared of dogs. Other people that might res- represent love because they, they love dogs, you know, it, it's it's very obvious psychology what's going on in the lucid dream. But what's not so obvious is that if you your interactions with those elements of the lucid dream affect your mind, of course they do. So if you go into a lucid dream and something scary appears and you run from it, you are further creating a habit of running from your fear. And we know that in a lucid dream, we're creating neural pathways because once the prefrontal cortex is activated, the brain thinks you're awake it doesn't think you're having a lucid dream it thinks you're awake so you are then perpetuating a fear-based paradigm of i move away from what scares me whereas if you're in a lucid dream you become lucid and you see something scary like a monster or something you think hang on my body's asleep in bed this is all a three-dimensional hallucination of my own mind so that monster must represent something i'm scared of it must represent some monstrous part of me a traumatized part of me a fearful part of me, a part of me that has become split off. So hang on, if I can show love to that thing rather than fight it, if I can literally hug it or say kind things to it or say, how can I help you? You know, how can I integrate this fear? Then not only are you integrating the fear of the dream and helping cure yourself from the nightmare, but also you're creating a neurological habit in the brain that says, I move towards fear. I do not let fear rule me. And that's affecting your waking state. This is the cool thing about lucid dreaming. If you can go into the lucid dream and you can embrace your demons, if you can show love to your zombies, if you can you know, hug your monsters, not only do you get this rush in the lucid dream that, wow, I'm kind of embracing my fear, I'm, I'm doing the, the scariest thing, but you're creating these neural pathways that mean in the waking state, the next time someone's bullying you, like your boss is bullying you at work, Or the next time you see something uh, on the street where there's an injustice, or the next time you're feeling the trauma from childhood, from the the bullying that happened at school, you're more likely to move towards that rather than run away from it and to actively engage that fear. And that makes us more powerful human beings. It makes us more human. Um, And you can see this. You know, anyone listening, you think, oh, this is bullshit. Here's the cool thing about lucid dreaming. You can test it. When I heard the things about people getting, athletes getting better at sports by training in their lucid dreams, I thought it was bullshit. So I went in the lucid dream and I trained and I found myself getting better at sports in the waking state. When I heard this thing about embracing your monsters in the lucid dream, I thought it was bullshit. So I went in and embraced the monster and I woke up buzzing with energy and feeling this like deep happiness for two days afterwards. You can feel it. So anyone
1: listening to this, who thinks it's bullshit, try it, don't believe me, try it. It is so powerful. I had this dream about someone from my past, an authority. I was periodically talking to this uh, person inside of me, like justifying myself, or I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And in the dream, I have finally understood that it's not actually her talking to me. It's like me, a part of my brain. Yes. It's a treasure that she... A part of your
2: brain that has been symbolized by that person so it's like when people dream and they see the bully from school and they think why does that bully from school always come into my dreams i haven't seen that person for 20 years i don't care about that person anymore i'm not a child anymore yeah but they are a symbol of um disempowerment or they are a symbol of fear and that's the cool thing about dreams it's working with symbols but in the lucid dream we can intentionally call that symbol So, you know, if the the bully from school was called Alex, you can get lucid and call for Alex to come into the dream. And that symbolic representation of fear will arrive. And you can dialogue with it. You can embrace it. You can, you know, dissolve it. And that'll have a very powerful effect on the mind. And this is why lucid dreaming is being seen as such a powerful intervention in therapy. Um, You know, I gave a talk at the Ministry of Defense three weeks ago now. I mean, this is insane. The science is so strong now for lucid dreaming being a treatment for nightmares that they're getting people like me going into the Ministry of Defence to talk to the colonels and the, and the all the, um, uh, uh, the sorry the the generals in the um, in the armed forces and the people from the Ministry of Defence, so that's MI5, MI6, telling them about lucid dreaming. This is insane. You know, ten years ago you would you couldn't even mention lucid dreaming in somewhere like the Ministry of Defence now it's become so verified that they're actually using it as a way to treat soldiers who come back from wars and have bad nightmares but this stuff is this stuff is real
1: I, I've checked your Instagram and there were a couple of pictures of you in MMA fighting mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you is it a part of your shadow how do you how do you see it because I know some Buddhists or at least people who think they're Buddhists who say that, uh this is still some violence and this is reinforcement of violence
2: Mm. good question um so first of all there's a long tradition of buddhism and martial arts so i think you're right say people who think they're buddhists think there's a conflict actual buddhists no the shaolin monks i mean the most famous buddhist monks in the world were the pioneers of kung fu and you see these guys training and fighting this is serious this is not like uh jackie chan movie this is serious combat right and the Shaolin Kung Fu, well, there's a lot of different histories. One of the histories is that the Shaolin Kung Fu method was developed to protect the Buddhist temples. Because you had a lot of like uh, gold, like um, gold-plated Buddhas, right? And a lot of wealth in these temples because of people giving offerings and stuff. Um, so the warlords would attack the temples. they tell the monks, they can't do anything. So let's steal all the golden Buddhas and melt them down and get all the money. So this was developed that we needed a way to kind of protect the temples. Um, And one one of the histories is that Shaolin Kung Fu was was developed as a way for this to to happen. So first of all, there's a long history between martial arts and Buddhism. Um, Number two, there's a big difference between the art of combat and violence. So, for example, the kickboxing competitions I do—it is actually kickboxing, not not MMA. So there are big gloves, 16-ounce gloves. You know, you have a head guard, you have a feet guards, all this kind of stuff. Um, there's a big difference between practicing the art of combat, which I do find is a meditative thing to do, and fighting. You know, I haven't had a fight on the street, my God, since I was a teenager. But Actually, that's not true. I did almost have one just after Brexit. Brexit happened. Weirdly, man, in London, two weeks after of Brexit, everyone was saying racist things, was saying homophobic things. It was as if the censor was just taken off people's mouths and they said what they liked. So actually there was a was a gay guy uh being abused in the park uh, by this drunk guy, and um and I helped that guy. But it was there was actually no need for violence. There was just a need for someone with the confidence to, to prevent this this uh this this unjust thing from happening. But anyway. In a kickboxing competition, you're signing a contract with someone. You're saying, okay, you practice martial arts. I practice martial arts, just like a tennis player has to enter tennis competitions to see how good they are at tennis martial artists. I believe need to enter martial arts competitions to see how good they are. Because otherwise you're just hitting a bag, you know, as Bruce Lee said, the bag doesn't hit back, you know, so we need to test this. So we go into a situation that tests our combat skills and we say, okay, you cover your head in a pillow. I'll cover my head in a pillow. We'll put pillows on our hands, pillows on our feet, and we'll see how many times I can hit you without you hitting me. And then we'll count up the points at the end. I see no problem in that. I see no um, uh, conflict in Buddhist practice. Um, I feel no kind of paradox of like, oh, how can I be fighting and be a Buddhist um, at all? Other people may have different views. Uh, but i'd ask them to check the history of buddhism before they make that judgment and also at a meditative point of view if you want to see how your mind is you know we need to test our mind of meditation too and how do we test the mind of meditation okay go into a ring with a stranger and have a martial arts competition then you're going to see how still your mind is you know do you respond with violence do you respond with aggression You know, the way to win a martial arts competition is to be able to fight someone without being in fight or flight. You know, there's fight or flight and rest and digest, right, the two different uh, nervous systems. And if you can be in a competition, a martial arts competition, and stay in rest and digest and not be in fight or flight, that's the way you can win. The moment you get into fight or flight and then you're aggressive, you're going to lose because you're not mindful that the meditation of the mind is gone. So I think also it's a very good test for our meditation to see, can we stay calm? Can we, can we uh, move without aggression? Can we practice martial arts without wanting to hurt the person? You know, before I enter a competition, I literally pray by the side of the ring and I pray that may, my, may me and the person I'm fighting be free from injury and free from pain. And may we both give the best display of our martial arts capacity possible. That's
1: the prayer great point that's amazing because you're also changing the whole view the whole perspective of the need of necessity for martial arts I totally agree with you that there has to be a place to check all the like meditative skills we acquire when my baby was born for example that's the first time when I realized why I was doing different meditations really cold or trying to stay as calm as possible that was a really hard exam at that time yeah, i can imagine yeah a really hard exam yeah <laughs> what is your current daily agenda for meditation and preparations for lucid dreaming okay and um, do you actually set the alarm clock at night still or you just already have enough skills not to do that No, not at all.
2: I'm I'm not a natural lucid dreamer. So unless I do the lucid dream practices, I don't have lucid dreams. One of the reasons that, well, I might have a few, but not not regularly. One of the reasons that I started doing these four-day intensive retreats, you know, where I wake everyone up during the night, is so that I have time for practice. I just created my ideal retreat schedule. And I said, well, look, maybe other people want to do it. And then 50 people sign up and do it with me. So actually, most of my practice is done on retreats. When I get home after a four day retreat, the last thing I want to do is to set my alarm and do stuff. You know, I want to go out to pizza and drink a beer and, and just be normal. Um, so, weirdly, I have the least amount of lucid dreams in my bed, in my bedroom. The least, the most amount of lucid dreams are when I'm traveling in hotel rooms, running retreats, because in my bed, I feel so kind of safe that I just sleep really deep. You know, that's where I get my restorative sleep. Whereas when I'm traveling, when I'm teaching, that's when I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on duty. Let's do the practice now. Um, as far as kind of meditation routine, um, I don't have a daily routine. I have a weekly, So I have a certain amount of hours a week that I try and do. So sometimes that means on Sunday I have to do a lot of meditation because I was, oh no, I've got four hours left to do.
1: Then I will not be pushing myself too hard.
2: <laughs> you've got a baby. Like Once you got a baby, that, just like you said, that can be your meditation. Like, of course, if you can get four more meditation, brilliant, just five minutes here, five minutes there. You know, use an app, use Headspace or something that will help you get these little five-minute chunks, they all add up. It's like when people say they don't have time to go to the gym and I say, do 100 press-ups a day. If you do 100 press-ups a day for one month, your body will change, undoubtedly. And they say, how do I do 100 press-ups a day? You do 20 in the morning, you do 20 at lunch, you do 20 thing 20 before bed, you know, and you built up to 100. Um, And it's exactly the same with meditation. But you with your baby, man, I mean, every day must be the, the, you know, strengthening your your muscles of mind and and your patience and your compassion. So, yeah, give yourself a break on that, man. It sounds like you're doing a great
1: job. (laughs) Thank you, Charlie. How do you look at different Palo Santo, for example, or specialties or... I have recently tried uh, a medicine for lucid dreaming. I forgot how it is called. It starts with A, I think. Okay, doesn't matter. So I tried it and I had I had uh, lucid dreaming. I did, but I also had such an incredible rash in all the inappropriate places. Oh no. Uh, I had uh, a very strange hangover, galantamine. Sorry, galantamine. Oh, galantamine, okay. I've got very strong views on galantamine yeah i um, had such a hangover i was kind of in um, a place where i was thinking and then with time would pass and i was just keeping moments and i wasn't really present to what was happening it happened to me my friends tried it and it was somehow good for them they mm. didn't experience what i experienced but i decided that maybe galantamine is not my thing for
0: sure
2: yeah I, i'd agree with you um you know glantin is an anti-alzheimer's drug it's what people take when they have dementia they have Alzheimer's because it increases blood flow to the memory centers of the brain if you take it when you don't have alzheimer's or dementia and if the thing you're trying to remember before bed is i'm going to have a lucid dream i'm going to know when i'm dreaming and it can help with that so you still have to have the intention as you know um i'd say this you know would we take a pill to meditate and mo- most people, the answer is no. Lucid dreaming is a form of meditation. In fact, in many ways, it's a higher form of meditation. In Tibetan Buddhist view, it's actually a higher form of waking meditation. So I'd be very careful popping a pill before meditation. However, there's a very strong placebo effect. So I think a lot of the herbal things, like when people take mug water, these kind of dream teas, they get and stuff like that, maybe they have nothing psychoactive in them. But if you can create a little ritual, around you know taking the herb or having the herbal tea before bed that ritual will boost the placebo effect and the placebo effect is so powerful that we know in studies even if you tell someone it's the placebo it still works so it doesn't matter if they think it doesn't work just the act of kind of taking the tea or taking the pill can work so the herbal things the vitamin based things like b vitamin 6 B vitamin 12 magnesium before bed those things are good for your body you know, especially if like me, if you're a vegetarian, you need those vitamins. So if we know that those vitamins help with dream recall, I think that's fine to take, you know, herbal-based things, vitamin-based things. But when they're kind of medicines, things like galantamine or like really heavy chemicals, I don't know, man, I I just, I, I think it's like steroids, you know, steroids in the gym. It's like, okay, if you take steroids, you've still got to work out. You've still got to pump weights you still got to lift weights, but your muscle's going to grow much faster. Um, Like galantamine, if you take galantamine, you've still got to do the lucid dreaming practices, but it's going to manifest much quicker. But just like steroids, there are all these side effects as as you discussed, things with the rash. I mean, the rash I haven't heard of before, but the hangover, galantamine hangover is a whole thing. You hear people talking on the forums the next day, they feel groggy, they feel like they've had beers before bed. Um, So, you know, this is, I'd say, if you wouldn't use steroids in the gym, don't use (laughs) galantamine.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I will know. I will know. I agree.
2: You made it. Oh, no, but you've got to try it, man. Like, I tried it too. I've tried it like five or six times. Um, It's important to have an opinion on it. Um, But, yeah, I got a very strong message. Actually, from the dreamer, I got a strong message. Like, it actually told me, this is bullshit. Don't use it. You are vandalizing your spiritual practice. I got a very very
1: strong message from from the dream saying don't use this stuff but maybe that was just for me I don't know. okay I was wondering is there any proof of how we can influence others through our lucid dreams I mean are there any proofs maybe during the workshops or maybe some research that you have read that people for example left a message for someone in their dreams and that somehow influence the other person? Mm. Yeah, there's no, no scientific research on that. Though. I mean,
2: that's way outside science. But based on 11 years of teaching workshops and retreats in more than 25 countries, yeah, I've heard way too many stories not to believe some of them. Um, sometimes it's just, it's coincidence, people want to believe it. But I can say like over 10, maybe 10, 11, 12 stories where I've been told by someone I trust, you know, and they don't, they're not trying to impress me. They're not, there's too much detail in what they're saying. And you then hear the other person, there's too much detail. And you realize, fuck man, that actually happened. One of them, either it's a psychic connection through the lucid dream, um, or maybe some part of their conscience actually entered their lucid dream. I can't explain it, but I know I've seen too many of those things for it to be not true. I think it's more rare. Than people think people like to think it's oh yeah we can enter people's dreams yeah it's like no you can't it's very very rare uh, sorry not no you can't it's it's sometimes you can but it's very very rare. <laughs> okay so maybe like out of a hundred times like if we have a dream together like tonight i might dream about you because we've done this podcast together it doesn't mean that you were in my dream um just means we had the same daytime experience so maybe you'll dream about me tonight So when people say that and they call it a shared dream, I've got to call bullshit. The reason I call bullshit is not because I'm a a cynic and I don't believe it's possible. It's because I do believe it's possible. So because I do believe it's possible and I would really love for us to get verified scientific proof that it's possible, I think we need to be very rigorous in what we say is definitely a shared dream and what is just a coincidence. So it's because I do believe, not because I don't believe. Yeah, the Buddhist view, though, if you're the Buddhist view, they say, yeah, it's totally possible. Because in the dream state, you have seven times the power of consciousness. So imagine if you had 700% more consciousness right now. You would be psychic, you could levitate, you could do all these things that we can do in the lucid dream. So they say, if you were going to communicate with someone psychically, much, much easier to do that in the lucid dream than the waking state. and as far as entering each other's dreams and stuff, they'd say, yeah, it's it's possible if you set the intention, like awakened beings, people who've had an enlightenment experience, they can enter people's dreams, they say, uh, you can receive prophecies from the dreams, see future events before they happen. All of that is said to be possible in Buddhism. But as far as like scientific research, no. <laughs> yeah, Not yet.
1: Thank you, Charlie. Uh, one last question, I promise. <laughs> with named and we've discussed two things that people could do to try lucid dreaming like to set up an intention to repeat their intention for at least 21 time before they go to bed and practice it for seven days mm-hmm. also you shared about the alarm clock and that people can actually wake up in order to remind themselves about their intention can you give two or maybe three or maybe even one more tool just for people to have in their backpack?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, the things that I often give in talks like this where people want a quick few tips, what I call the three Ds. So the first D is dream recall. And we've discussed that. That's falling asleep as you go through the hypnagogic state, reciting over and over again, 21 times if you can. Tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream recall. Tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream week So falling asleep reciting that. Number two, the second D is dream diaries. So writing down your dreams. The reason we write down our dreams is not to interpret them, although if you want to, that's fine. The reason we write them down is to spot patterns. Because as you write down your dreams, let's say you write down your dreams for seven nights in a row, and then at the end of the seven nights you look back, you'll start to see patterns. You'll see, oh look, I often dream that I'm back at school. Or wow, yeah, I always dream of my dead grandmother. Or I always have that dream that I'm back in the house where I grew up in. You'll start to see these patterns emerging. That's why we keep the dream diary. And once you see those patterns, simply by being aware of them, you start to create a habit of noticing them. But even better is if you can see a recurring one, let's say you always dream of being back at school. Then the third D is called dream signs. And this is, as you're falling asleep, you can say to yourself, well, if between now and breakfast, I'm back at school, then I must be dreaming. If between now and breakfast, I'm back at school, I must be dreaming. So you create a very strong intention that if you find yourself back at school, uh, or the school appears before now and, and the time you wake up, you must be dreaming. Now that sounds kind of simplistic, but we use that part of the memory all of the time when we say, oh, you know, um, I owe my friend like um, 50 pounds. I've got to remember to get some money from the cash point. I've got to remember to get money from the cash point. Then we forget about it. But the next time we see an ATM, a cash point, we go, oh, I owe that 50 pounds. And we get the money. So it's actually a quite a good, uh, it, it's, it's quite a muscular part of our memory. You know, we use it a lot. Um, so it sounds crazy. How will I remember that in the dream? But you will. Because we dream about our habits. If you're in the habit of being scared of spiders, you often dream about scary spiders. If you're in the habit of being worried about that thing at work, you might dream about that thing at work. If you can be in the habit of knowing that these things only happen in my dreams, being back at school, seeing my dead grandmother, whatever it is, then the awareness of that habit will often trigger into the lucid dream. But these are just kind of a few beginner things.
1: Uh, What is the best way to learn about you and to connect with you? Yeah, if you go
2: to my website charliemorley.com, um, that's got all the information about the books and the online courses and stuff like that. Um, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram again, Charlie Morley Lucid Dreaming. Um, you'll find me. Um, and yeah, the online courses are good. There's a six-hour one, which is like six hours of footage. It's very good. It's it's without doubt the best lucid dreaming online course on the market. And I say that with full respect to my other friends who've done online courses. Um but it it's it just is. It's just it's, it's not that I'm so good, but it's the way it's been shot is so good because it's filmed by these documentary filmmakers. So the quality of the footage is just so high because they weren't online course makers, they were documentary makers who made an online course for me. So just the quality of the footage is definitely the
1: highest. It can actually, be found on your site as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, all Go through the course then. Right, cool. enjoy it. Charlie, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun, so thank Thanks, you. Thanks, man. It was lovely talking to you. I had fun too. Thank you. Cool. thank you.
2: Okay, man, have a good day. Have a
1: great day. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Did you enjoy our conversations much, cited? If yes, please rate us on iTunes. It's really important for us because it is some feedback on what's happening also you can find us on instagram where we post regularly and uh, you can contact and just text us and leave a message you can tell us what you liked in our episodes what you didn't like we're always happy to hear from you if you have some ideas who we can talk to and yeah just anything let us know Next Saturday we talk to an amazing award-winning author of the book called Deep with Mr. James Nestor. We talk about breath, we talk about whales, we talk about ocean exploration. It's an amazing episode. So yeah, you will hear from us next Saturday. (laughs) Bye-bye.